This is a unique uh, passage of scripture because we have an account that we don't have for most of the women in scripture. In scripture, we don't have the years of most of the women's lives, but uniquely we have that of Sarah here. Sarah lived 127 years. Um, And in this passage, uh, we see something about her and the void that was left by her life. What we need to understand from this passage as a whole is that um, death is a reality. And so we'll look at this in three passages, in three parts, I should say. The first two verses sort of frame what's happening in this, and that is this reality of death. And then in verses uh, 3 through 16, we'll see how Abraham is a sojourner and what that means for him and for us. And then finally, 17 through 20, we will look at his hope that he had at this place called Hebron. Now first, um, it's important for us to do this, to enter into this, because sometimes we are averse to thinking about death. Sometimes we can be um, averse to grief and to uh, mourning. And Sarah, in her death, was uniquely recorded in Scripture, which was a heartbreaking thing. Uh, This woman was from Babylon, and then she was married there, and with her husband she went to Haran. And if we were hearing her obituary in a funeral service and we were hearing about her life, we would hear that then they decided to move to Canaan. And then they even spent a few years down in Egypt, but they don't like to talk about that part of her story. Then they ended up back in Canaan, and that's where they moved around, and she basically lived in that area the rest of her life, and then she was buried there. Sarah lived 127 years. Now, I heard an old Southern preacher explain that there are seven phases of a woman's life. Infant, child, miss, young lady, young lady, young lady, young lady. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the reality here is when Sarah had lived her life, a very full life, and it was a life of faith, she's recorded in Hebrews 11, she died. And this phrase that begins here in these first couple verses shows up nine times in this passage, where first Abraham explains that he has to bury his dead. His wife is referred to as Abraham's dead And it's this very shocking, very um, final, harsh reality that now the wife that had been his companion is gone. This word shows up first in Genesis 2.17, where God warns Adam and he tells Adam, if you obey me, good, but if you eat from this tree of which I command you not to eat, uh, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You will have death. And then in the next chapter, Eve sort of says what Adam was told, but she adds a little bit to it. And then the serpent, Satan, comes to her and he says, you will not surely die. And after that, what happens is there is death. And there is death and then there's death, and then there's death, and it never stops. The reality of death is very harsh. So when you get to chapter 5, Adam dies, 
And you get this formula with many people in Scripture that are recorded, how they lived, they had sons, they had daughters, and they lived so many years, and then this last phrase, and he died, and he died, especially in chapter 5 of Genesis. Death never stops coming. And so it's this reality. Death is something that we shouldn't um, ignore, okay? Death is a painful reality for all people. And it is right and it is proper to feel the pain of it. It is right and it is proper to grieve. And we need, we need a place for that in our lives. We need time to weep. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn now because they will be comforted. Abraham speaks of his dear wife with such tender pain that you can feel it. At the end of this passage, after referring to his dead, he buries his wife, it says. And you can sort of feel this, this burden that you've known if you've had anyone that you've loved die. Friends, here's the point that we should get from this. It should hurt when those we love die. It really should. And sometimes we want to stay away from that. Sometimes we want to avoid it. But when you lose someone that you love, it leaves a big hole. It leaves a big void. Uh, I was at a funeral for a friend of mine, a guy that I grew up with over my hometown. I would do work with his family. He and his brother grew up on a farm, and his dad would give us jobs to do in the summer. And this friend of mine, uh, Tyler, died, and he had gone to Lafayette College up in Easton. And uh, the funeral service for him, one of them, was held up there. And so when we were there, his dad, who was this old farmer, spoke. And he was a man of faith. He was a strong believer. And and I remember when he got up there, he said uh, that when I got the call about Tyler, Tyler was in his mid-30s, and he had a heart attack, completely out of the blue, and he just died. And so his dad, Mr. Myers, got up there, and he said, when I got that call, an arrow went into my heart, and it will be there as long as I'm in this world. And he's a man of few words, but when he said that, he spoke something that was just, it just has stuck with me, has resonated. The pain of death, the pain of losing his son, such a painful thing, such a hard thing. And he has to go through it, and he has to carry that. C.S. Lewis writes about this kind of grief, and he, he says different things. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And in A Grief Observed, he talks about the process he went through when he lost his wife. And, and he said different things about it. He said, no one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear, that this, this feeling of panic, this feeling of anxiety, it, it just so much overcomes him. And he said this, He said, you can't avoid it. Whenever grief comes to you, you just have to go through it. And he compares it to going to the dentist. You just have to sit in that chair and you have to have the drill do its work. And so Lewis says this. He says, the death of a beloved is an amputation. And that's a good way to put it too. That metaphor of having a part of your body removed is so accurate it's so much like that. One of my professors in seminary, he taught pastoral ministry. His name was Ken Swetland. He said something that I'm going to just adapt a little. 
Uh, and I'm going to add some C.S. Lewis words here. But he said, every time I sit and grieve with someone who has lost a loved one or who is losing someone now, it touches a nerve in me that was left exposed when I had a loved one amputated. What, what, what that professor said, Ken Swetland, he, what he said was, I don't understand their grief and their loss, but it touches a nerve in me because of those that I have lost. And I cry with them, and I feel a similar pain together. So here's the point. It is right to grieve. We need room in our faith to cry, to mourn, to lament. And if we don't do that, we're not really doing something that God has put us into for a purpose that we will see in this passage. It's right to grieve. When death comes and takes part of you, you have no option but to go through it, through that process. There is still in this world, even as Christians, a painful stab from death, even for believers. And there's something that's really important that I want you to hear this morning. Um, Some people are told a lie about the Christian life. And I want to make sure that you're not taken by that lie. The lie is that if you trust Christ, then you will always win, that you will always come out on top that you will always be joyful and happy and victorious and have a life without tears. And you're told to expect all good. Um, and that is, that's a lie. And the problem with that is whenever you have this loss, it doesn't make sense. Whenever you're put into grief, whenever you have to walk through a valley of a shadow of death, then you're, you're, you're made to do that and then told to just be happy. And it's not always to be that way. Rather, um, God puts us into times like this. And he has a reason for it. He took Israel and he saved them from slavery in Egypt. And then they had a time in the wilderness. And then after that, they entered a promised land. What people do whenever they tell you that you will go from not believing in Christ, to believing in Christ and it will be all victory, is that they remove that middle part. And they make you think that life in Christ will be the promised land all completely right now. But the way Christ has made it is that, in fact, we are to walk through this world still. And that's not an easy task very often. In fact, we have to learn how to grieve. We have to learn how to, what it's like to hunger and to thirst, and to learn to depend on God during this process. And he's working in us in this process. So we should desire to be close to God. We should desire the things that are ahead after our time in this wilderness. But we have to go through this. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians a phrase in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, I don't want you to grieve in a certain way. He says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Okay, so rather, as believers, we are told that we should grieve, yes, and that's a part of life, and we should do it with hope. We should do it um, with the hope that God has. So let's, let's look at that. When this stab 
of grief comes, when these amputations of loss come into our lives, we can grieve with hope because of what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. That passage, we always hear that around uh, Easter time. It tells us this, that um, there is no lasting effect of death for those that are believers that are in Christ. In Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's this victory that overcomes even death. And so you have to put it there. So in 1 Corinthians 15, like in verse 55, it says, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then it says that we have victory over death, over the grave, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what that means is this. It's like, it's like if you get swarmed by yellow jackets, imagine that they come on you and they sting you and their stingers go into you all over, okay? That's going to hurt. And death should still hurt for us. But the, the sting is gone. The sting is gone because Jesus has won a victory. And now here is how it changes completely for us. It changes in this way. We now have hope that goes beyond this valley of the shadow of death. In Christ, there is something that is beyond the times of extreme loss and the amputation of a loved one, where, where we feel this void in our hearts and it leaves a big hole or it puts an arrow in our heart. That is all true. And yet, when we look to Christ, we see that in him, he has overcome the grave. Now, there's an, there's an example of this in, in John chapter 11. Jesus loved this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus died while Jesus was away. And Jesus comes to them, and here's the thing. The resurrection was a thought that was in their minds. They knew that there would be a time when people would come back to life. Okay, but it was still very painful for them to walk through this. When Jesus heard that Lazarus had died, it says something in, in there that you have to pay attention to. Early in John 11, because he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed away longer. He remained away when Lazarus was sick and he was about to die. Because he loved them, he let them go through the process of Lazarus dying being in the tomb for four days. And then when he showed up in their town of Bethany, which is just below Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jesus comes and, La and Martha goes out to him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Okay, and that's a good thing to, to hear and to think. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But what they wanted was for him not to have died. What they wanted is that Jesus, if Jesus had been there, he would not have had to go into that tomb and have lost his physical life. But then that's when Jesus said something to her. And this is something that I think is happening with all of us. This is something I want us to see in this passage with, with Abraham, with Sarah having died. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. And the life. That is huge. You see, the resurrection was this abstract thing that was out there in the future for Martha. 
But Jesus had to have her understand, you need to understand that I am the resurrection. And so her faith needed to be pointed towards him. Now, why is that so important? It's so important because every hope that we have for life, all of the power that rises, raises us from the grave, that will raise us on the last day, that gives us victory over even death when we lay our loved ones in the ground, is in Him. It is He who has overcome the grave. And then He says this, Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she, says that, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Okay, well, how do we have this? How can we live with that kind of faith? And most of us have that kind of faith. Some here don't yet realize that. Some haven't come to Christ yet in that way. Well, we see in verses 3 through 16 that the people that believe in this have something that's pretty amazing. We have faith in a Savior. We're still in this world, but we're in this world in a unique way. Look at the word that Abraham uses to describe himself. When he rises from before his dead and he talks to these Hittites, he starts with these words, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. That little phrase, I am a sojourner, is very important for us. Being a sojourner is to be an immigrant. You're you're not a local. So, So Abraham is someone that lives there, but he's different than everyone else. He wasn't born there. He didn't grow up there. He doesn't own land there. Not yet. This is where he gets his first purchase of land. This is his hometown, you might say. Now, when he says that I'm a sojourner, that is informative for all of us. His perspective on who he is and how he carries himself there is a picture of how every Christian is in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that we are sojourners in this way. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. People that belong to God are separated in this world. We are sojourners. This world is not our home. This whole place is not our home. And the thing that dominates this passage where Abraham calls himself a sojourner is how he, a worshiper of God, a believer, a sojourner, interacts with the Hittites, and especially this man, Ephron. And the big thing in this section is this negotiation for a piece of land. See, Abraham needed a place to bury his wife, his dear, beloved wife. Ephron the Hittite was a guy here that makes a lot of money in this transaction. But Abraham goes before this group of Hittites in a very public place, the city gate. And he goes and he bows before them. And he wants their help. The contrast is between this interaction of this man Ephron who owns a cave that Abraham wants to buy. He basically wants to buy a burial plot. That's all he's asking for. Ephron the Hittite owns the one, the cave that he desires. And so it becomes an interaction between Abraham and this man Ephron. 
Now, Ephron the Hittite makes a lot of money by selling a cave with a field in it. And John Calvin in his commentary says that, look, there's nothing wrong with what Ephron does. He wanted to make a profit, and he did very well. He probably was happy with a big grin when he went home and talked to his wife and said, you won't believe how much silver I got for that cave. He could do whatever he wanted with that field, and he sold it, and he got a lot of silver. Now, the silver was his, and silver can buy a lot of things, and Ephron made out very well. Um, Here's the point, though. Ephron was, was keen on getting as much silver as he could get, and he made out like a... He made out great. And here's the thing that we should see with Ephron. And I want to say this in a way that is supposed to convict us, okay? And turn us away from these things. If this world is truly your home, then you should use whatever money or resources you have to make it as comfortable and as pleasurable as possible. And you should try to get as much money as you can to do that, to live your best life right now. You should, you, should, you should work out your dealings so that you come out on top and that you are always winning. But if you're a sojourner here, and then your, your value, the things that you treasure the most, um, will not be the things of this world. And the way that you value things here will be different much more like Abraham, willing to let them go. You see here a contrast between someone that belongs to God, that's, whose faith is in God and his promises and his word. A sojourner, a Christian, should be someone whose value is in things that are way beyond this world, whose hope goes beyond the grave. And therefore, the things that we have, the, the treasures, a bag of silver, okay, will be used... And give it away freely and willingly for the sake of the things of God. To to gain things in in God's kingdom. To see people come to Christ. uh, To show hospitality. to um, To do good to people that suffer. To show kindness and compassion. When we look at people that are so consumed by this world and live for this world, we should see that and not be surprised. Okay, Don't be surprised when an unbeliever acts like this. When a believer acts like this, it's a very dangerous thing. It's the love of money uh, that is you know, the root of all kinds of evil. This love of money is something where you can't serve it and serve God together. It will pull your heart away from God. So a believer has to be very careful to not turn to that idol of wealth and of, of money. But we can also look at an unbeliever that has this love for the things of this world and be very sad for them. It's sad and we should have compassion on such people. Do you know why? Because they don't see the much greater treasure that God is holding out in the gospel. They don't yet comprehend how much better it is to have Christ. They don't understand that the things of this world are all passing away. You know, we have these sayings that people talk about that you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Like, everyone says that. I mean, there's like, there are posters of, of these things. But it's true. And yet it doesn't sink in. It's almost like we believe the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden, that you will not surely die. 
And therefore, we're tempted either as an unbeliever to completely find our, our fullness in the things of this world, thinking that we will never die. Or as a believer, even to be tempted to just ignore the things that God has said, the promises that he's given us about what will be. So in contrast to Ephron, we have Abraham. Abraham was a worshiper of God, and he was a stranger in Canaan, and he wanted to buy this cave, and he did buy it. Now, the interesting thing here is that Abraham is at the city gate with the Hittites and all of these people around, and he didn't negotiate the price. You always negotiate the price, but he doesn't. And the first price that's given is always given as a high price. Like if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I'd like to buy a piece of land from you, your response is, oh yeah, that's a, that's a gem of a piece of land. I'm going to need a quarter million for that. And then the other person is going to be like, oh, wow, that's, uh, you know, no one has ever paid that much for you know, this plot of land, this kind of land around here. Uh, let's say it's less. So Abraham, you would expect to have that as his response. You would think he would say, well, you know, the cave is nice, but I'm going to need to do a lot to it. And so everyone's listening, and they say, and then Abraham would say, you know, maybe, maybe we should talk about like 200 shekels of silver, not four. And it would go back and forth like this, and they would, they would show honor to one another, but really what they're doing is they're having a little tug of war. And then they would settle somewhere in the middle. Ephron is, is showing himself to be a great person. He says three times that basically without saying, it was like a humble brag. He says three times, I give it to you. I give it to you. He says three times, I, Abraham, give it to you. Bury your dead. I will be your benefactor. And for him, he was purchasing great honor with doing that. And he didn't even need um, to say more. It was a way of him being the great person. Abraham said, no, no, no. I need to buy this. I want it to be mine by purchase. I want to own this. I don't want to be in your debt with this cave. And he says, can we, can we figure out a price? And whenever Ephron says, what's a, what's a piece of land, a field and a cave? It's only worth four, 400 shekels of silver. It's a lot of money. Abraham says, okay, name the price. Everyone heard it. So he says, okay, I need 400 shekels. He gets it. He hands it over. Everyone sees it, and it's his. Why would he act like that? Because his treasure isn't in this world. Because his treasure was in the promises of God. And that's what that place represented. As a sojourner, he was gladly willing to let go of, of, of wealth. He was gladly willing to, to treat uh, financial things as light and passing. Why? Because he, wouldn't, he didn't want to return to Haran. He wanted this land that God had promised him. He was a sojourner, so he didn't haggle. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's an interesting thing here for believers to understand. See, believers often get caught up in this... Um, this idea that the things of this world have to be comfortable for us. Again, it's that lie. But here's something that the believers are told. When they're warned about fading away, about drifting away, he says this, 
you need to recall, he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that, your, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And he says, don't throw away that confidence. You see, as believers, if we have Christ, we have everything. If we have Christ, then we will be willing to let go of our reputation. We will be willing to let go of our treasure in this world. When you have Christ, you have everything. And, and he is far more valuable than, than, than anything you could have in this world. When you have Christ, you have the one who came to give himself, to lay himself down for you. And now he calls you as his follower to take up a cross and to walk through this world, which is like a wilderness. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and some other apostles were arrested, they were beaten, and they were told, you cannot speak about Jesus. And they said, we're going to anyway. We're just going to do it. And then someone steps up and says, look, if this is of God, then you can't stop it. If it's, if it's, uh, if it's not, it'll die. So they say, all right, but you guys don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they let them go. Now look at what it says here. They beat, them, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. And, and what do you think they would do? You're just beaten. You were just physically beaten. You were dishonored in front of, in front of the city. And then you get released. What would you do? I'll tell you what most Christians today would do. They would file a complaint, they would post it on social media, they would have a photo of the, of, the, of the scars on their back, and they would say, look how we've been wronged, we can't stand for this, we need the government to act differently. They didn't. Look at what they did. When they went out, having been beaten, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name the treasure of their physical body and their reputation was, was taken from them. Taken from them. I mean, after you're beaten publicly, you, 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 like, that's hard. Physically, they're, they're scarred. They're broken. They're being beaten down physically. Their reputation. There will be people now that won't talk to them. Like, I don't want to be around someone that gets in that kind of trouble. But why were they doing it? They were doing it because their reputations belonged to Christ. And Christ allowed them to suffer to advance this gospel. In 1 Corinthians 4, the apostle says, we are like jars of clay. We are wasting away. And so death is working in us as the gospel is going forward so that life is at work in you. We are not in the promised land yet, but we are on our way. Abraham was a sojourner, and you, if you are a Christian, and I know that most of us are, then you are in a time where the gospel is being advanced, and we get to take up a cross, and we get to be a part of advancing it. The amazing thing is, we have a Savior that lets us be a part of this. 
And he's doing something in you as you go along in this process. Just like Abraham was a sojourner, and he could let go of his, worth, his uh, worldly treasure, his, um, his gold or his silver in this passage, he could let go of it because he had such a greater treasure. God had promised him something. The scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Abraham's treasure was in the things of God, the things that God had promised. What has God promised you? What do you have in Christ? Okay, in Christ you have an inheritance that is, it can't be corrupted, it cannot rust, it cannot be stolen. You have a very concrete, real inheritance in heaven waiting for you. And here's the option before you. You can store up those treasures that cannot be taken away right now. And you can put them where they will last for forever. Or you can have treasures now and spend them in this world. And so the, the treasure, the idea of treasures is this. You can have it now or you can send it ahead. Whenever your reputation is taken from you, whenever your health is taken from you, in Christ's service, when your worldly wealth is given away, Okay, for the sake of the gospel, what you're doing is you are sending your treasures ahead because God is allowing you to do that. You have the opportunity to do this. And in Christ, those things cannot, they cannot be taken away. They are not defiled. They don't get ruined by moth or rust. Thieves can't steal it. It will never go away and it will be yours forever with him and in him. And he himself is our greatest treasure. So, like Abraham, we get to choose to spend freely and generously in order to, to have a part in the things of God. And that's what he had. Well, Abraham was a sojourner and so is every Christian. Well, what did he have there? He was in this place called Hebron. This was where Abraham was when he stood and Lot went down and he chose Sodom. And Abraham turned back and God spoke to him. Remember this? This was back in Genesis chapter 13. Lot chose Sodom. Abraham was here. And God spoke to him there. And he says, Abraham, I want you to look north and east and west and south. And everything on this hill that's just a couple miles from Jerusalem, everything that you see will be yours, and it will be your offsprings forever, God says, as an inheritance. And that word is really important for us. That word is what Abraham then buys here. So we look at this last passage, and we see in verses 17 through 20 that Abraham had this hope that was here at Hebron. When he was at that place, God spoke to him and said, this will be your inheritance, okay, your sure possession. And then he made an altar there and he worshiped Yahweh. Now, this possession was something that he didn't own, he didn't own anything yet in his lifetime. And this is all that he purchases, this cave. But look at what it says in verse 18, that it was a possession in the presence of the Hittites, in verse 20, it was made over to Abraham as property. And the idea here is that this is his. He got the legal deed to this property. It was his. This is the first thing he gets, and it's the only thing in his lifetime that he gets here besides the promises of God. 
but he wanted this, and it was very important to him. In this place, he buries his wife, he himself is buried, his son, his daughter-in-law, the patriarchs are buried there. In fact, Jacob makes a big deal about this when he goes down to, to Egypt. He says, I want to be buried up there. And at the end of Genesis, in chapter 49, they, uh, Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh, and he goes and he takes Jacob up, and he buries him in this place. Why? Because God had given them a promise. God had given them a promise that he would be their God, and they were looking forward to something that was future from that place, and they wanted to be there. You know in Jerusalem, did you ever hear of the Mount of Olives, where there are all these, um, these white, sort of sun-bleached tombs just all over the hillside? You can see a picture of this online. All of these people want to be there for the day of resurrection. At the bottom of that hill is where the tombs of the kings are. So the tomb of David is down there, and, and his sons, and you, you see that they are waiting for a day of resurrection, what Abraham and his, his offspring had there in Hebron was this, the promise of God that there will be a resurrection. Now, for us, what is that? This is the inheritance. This is a picture of the hope that we have in Christ. Friends, here it is. Christ is the resurrection and the life. And as we trust in him who died okay, and was buried in a tomb, and then after three days... He rose again. He truly did. Because he lives, all who trust in him will be raised to life with a new body like his. And we will have life forevermore. And that is our future. That is our hope. Scripture says that everyone will be raised, but you want to be raised to life in him. And so this week we had three, I had three funerals. Several of you were there. We had believers that were buried And it's a hard thing. It's so much easier, though, because the sting of death is taken away when you know that it won't last, that there's a resurrection to come, a real, genuine resurrection where we will come alive again and we will not have death. That is when this time of the wilderness will be over. That is when the time of us being made what we ought to be will be done. Right now we have hope, okay? And it's in what we cannot yet see, We can't put our hands on it. Right now we have hope like Abraham had at Hebron. And our hope is in Christ. And our our focus should be on how Christ came alive from that grave. And how he will come again and raise all people. And believers will forever be with him. Your inheritance with Christ is safe. And that is where your hope is. It's in him. And we will forever be with the Lord. See, the people that originally got this, Israel, they were still in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. We're getting this in a similar place. We are in this world and we're in a process. God was working in the people of Israel to humble them and to test them, to bring out what was in their hearts, to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Whenever we are in this world, we are in a time of wilderness We are in a time when there is still this reality of death that we must grieve. But the sting has been removed. And there is a future and a promise for us. And as Israel was waiting to cross the Jordan into the promised land, we are waiting to enter that kingdom where all of the sin and death of this world will be gone and it will be behind us. Where death will be forever gone. 
Even now, though, we have a Savior who has overcome death itself, which cannot separate us from God's keeping love. Can death separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? No. Christ is our hope. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in His resurrection. And so we, as sojourners in this world, we have to continue on. And God's promises for His people in Christ go way beyond death. And that is how we are to grieve. That is how we are to go on in this world. Living for the things of of His kingdom that are beyond this world. And, And holding lightly the things that are of this world. Because in Him, we have a sure and an unshakable inheritance. Let's pray together.